Well, good morning, church. Uh, a few announcements before we get into uh, the message. Again, just because we're not meeting here in person, we are still a church because the church isn't the building. It is us uh, coming together however we can. So uh, wherever you're meeting right now, um, I just ask uh, again that you just continue to remember uh, one another, that you can comment here. If there are any needs uh, that you have as a family, let us know, please. You you can put it in the comments here. You can send me a DM. You can send me a text or an email. As a church family, we want to make sure that we're helping um, our family however we possibly can. Um, we will be taking communion as we do every week at the end of the message. So make sure that you have your communion ready, whatever that is, whether you've come to the church and you've picked up uh, the little emblems that we have here, whether you're using crackers, rich crackers, club crackers, you're using Doritos or Cheez-Its. Um, if you're using Cheez-Its, make sure they're the whole wheat ones because um, it goes better with your Dr. Pepper. So just remember that. Um, but whatever items you have, make sure you're ready for communion that we'll have uh, at the end of the message. Remember to make sure that you're uh, still continuing to give to the church financially. So uh, you can give on the website. You can go to the website and, and we use a program called Realm. You can use our Realm program. I encourage you um, that you can give as a guest, but if you don't have a Realm account yet and you would like one of those, just shoot me a message and uh, we'll make sure that we get you completely set up. That way you can set up your giving to be weekly, monthly, yearly, however you would like to do that. And then we have have our special gifts that you can give as well for many of those other things. Um, also want to let you know that uh, we have not been able thus far to have our uh, congregational meeting uh, to go over. We have two trustees uh, that we have to vote on um, as they're coming in, uh, but uh, we also want to give you an update of our 2019 budget and then also what we're doing so far in 2020 and what we're looking to do into the future. So, on May the 3rd, that's in two weeks from today, at 11.30 a.m., uh, we'll, we'll finish with church here, and then Miss Christie will be doing her kids' zone, and then we will be coming back to you, myself and the elders and, and Dave Buck, we'll be coming back together at 11.30 on May the 3rd uh, to go over uh, the, the financials uh, and looking at what God has been doing in the past uh, here at Stafford County Christian Church, and then also what he's going to be doing in the future. So with that, we're going to go ahead and dig into our uh, message this morning. Um, now, we are starting a new sermon series. We're looking at the book of James. We're going to be in James chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open them there to James chapter 1. And as you can see, um, one of the, uh, the, the picture that we have posted, uh, we're calling our series Collision. And we were trying to think of what we could use as our background for this. And uh, we ended up deciding on the biker um, as he was colliding with the ground. And we were like, you know, this is funny and it's reminding us of collision. Well, um, it just made it that much um, just true that we should use that as our image. Because yesterday, as I was coming to the church to do a wedding here, it was awesome. There was only four of us here, but we got to, I, I got to be a part of uh, Aaron and Kevin's wedding. It was awesome. Um, and uh, we'll be having the reception here later on once everything is lifted. Uh, but as as I was coming through a, a local subdivision, I had come to a stop sign, and uh, a guy was riding his bike. He was uh, had his dog on a leash beside him, and all of a sudden, the dog decided he needed to go. If you don't know what I mean by that, 
Ask someone who has a dog. But all of a sudden, the dog decided he needed to go. The dog locks up, which then makes the biker completely flip because uh, he is holding on to the leash. He was not injured. I made sure of it before I laughed, um, but it just made it that much truer that we had to use that as our image. It was God just speaking to us. Um, but there's times that we feel like that biker and we're holding on to that leash. We're, we, we're holding on just what we feel like to the end of our rope, rope and it doesn't matter what happens and we just feel that sudden weight, that smash of something tugging back on us. We all feel like that at some point or another. And sometimes we feel like we just need to let go, but we don't see it coming. A while back, I received a text that said, why does it seem some people just can't get a break? It isn't right. It just isn't fair to those of us who are trying to start over, that are trying to get our lives together. Why do things always have to happen to my family. The person went on to say, I mean, I know it's just not mine, but did I do something to deserve this? I just want to give up. I want to fight. I want to run. I hate this. And I would say that this person is not alone. I would say that there are many of you who are watching this, that are listening to this, feel like everything is just coming to an end. You, you, you just feel like life isn't fair. You've been furloughed. Your, your orders have been delayed to go to the next uh, duty station. Um, you've been laid off from work. You're waiting on that stimulus check to come in. You're wondering, when is this going to open back up? I don't know if I can truly homeschool my kids. Now I know what my teacher or my kids teachers are going through many of us hate to go through hard times and again we're going to start this series called collision and we're going to be in james chapter one but to give you a little bit of background on james and and where we're coming from here this book is extremely practical it's filled with all types of wise sayings very similar to the old testament book of proverbs Likely, this was the first book written in the New Testament. James wants to make sure that we have right beliefs and they get translated into right behavior, that our conduct matches our faith. You see, we're called to be doers, not simply hearers. Yes, that means that while you're listening to this message, and it's great that you're joining us in corporate worship, even though we're separated, there's still doing things that you can be doing. You can be checking in on your neighbors. You can be calling those people or emailing those people that are a part of your life groups or a part of your Bible study. You, you can still give um, to our serve food drive that we're doing. We have a barrel that's set up outside that we're uh, collecting non-perishable items. Uh, you can drop them off here at the church. The, the barrel is set up just outside. You can give those directly to serve. But we have been called to be doers, not just hearers of the word. In just 108 verses, we're given 54 different commands. Everyone is faced with two things that can absolutely torpedo our faith and that's what I want us to dig into here this morning trials and temptations 
Here's what we're going to learn today. Trials that test us will toughen our faith if we don't allow temptations to trip us up. Trials from without, temptations from within are absolutely no match for the Christian who has God on our side. So let's jump right into James chapter 1 verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Now, James isn't one of the original, this isn't, we're not talking about the brother John, the sons of thunder, James and John, the sons of Zebedee that followed Jesus around for three and a half years. This James is different. This is actually the half-brother of Jesus. And James was ashamed of his brother while he was alive. He didn't follow Jesus while he was alive. It wasn't until after the resurrection that James came to know who his brother really was. And it was then that he led the church in Jerusalem. But instead of reciting his resume, what I absolutely love that James does here, he celebrates his servanthood. The word here, as he says, James a servant, is actually bond servant. It means that he, his will is consumed in fulfilling the will of his master. Notice how he identifies God and Jesus as co-equal. He puts them on the same playing field. We just finished our series of, of walking through the I am statements of Jesus. Jesus said, I am. God said, I am. They were co-equal. They are co-equal. The book of James refers or alludes to 22 books of the Old Testament. And that makes sense because the original recipients of this letter would have been Jewish descent. He talks about those that were scattered in the dispersion. Now, what that means and what it refers to is what happens in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. You see, the, the, the small group of Christians were right there in Jerusalem, and they stayed in Jerusalem. Now, Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, I want you to go to Jerusalem and to Judea, Judea and Samaria, and to the other parts of the world. The problem was, for most of them, they stayed right there in Jerusalem. They wanted to be a part of the action. But in, Jan or in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, this is what we read. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria and the surrounding areas. We're scattered as well. Today, we're scattered. We're not able to meet in person. We're scattered as we live on mission. Wherever you're listening to this message, you're scattered exactly where God wants you to be. And right now, you need to not just be hearers, but doers of the word. You need to put it into action. But in order for us to be able to do that, we need to break down exactly what James wants us to see. Because the first thing that we have to understand is we're going to face trials that will test us. Because it's so easy to get off mission when we go through the messes of life, let's consider three commands we're to obey. The first one is to count it all joy. Look at verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various 
kinds. Now that word count has the idea of pressing your mind down on something. The picture is someone leading his or her mind through a reasoning process to arrive at a conclusion. Now we've probably all had to do that at one point or another. We're, we're, we're deciding on what house to buy. We're deciding on what vehicle to purchase. We're, we're deciding whether or not to have children. We're, we're deciding all of these different things in our lives. So we're putting our head down and we're counting the cost. We're really thinking of everything that's going on. And he continues, he says, count it all joy. Now to count it all joy, it means to be jubilation, to have jubilation in the middle of tribulation. You know, it's hard to try to understand how we can be joyful in the middle of a trial. And with everything that we have going on in the world today, we think about that very thing. How do we find joy in the midst of losing our job and businesses being closed and, and not really knowing for sure what's going to happen tomorrow? What happens if uh, I or my family contract this virus? How am I going to work through all of these different things? It's really easy to get down. But we can find joy even in the midst of all of the hard times that we go through. And what we need to do is instead of telling people that we're surviving, we need to tell people that we are thriving in the midst of all of the tribulation that's around us. Now, we have to also understand that we're not talking about happiness. Being joyful and being happy are two totally different things. You see, when I'm happy... It's all about, and it's dependent upon what is happening to me. So if things are going great in my life, I'm probably happy. If things are going horrible in my life, if I'm losing my job, if I'm having to be home with my children all day and have to help them with, with geometry and science and, and all of these other things, we may say, well, I'm not very happy in all of this. And that's different from joy. Here's a, a definition of joy that I love. Joy is a deep satisfaction that comes from knowing God is in control, even when my circumstances seem to be out of control. I'm going to read that one again. Satisfaction that comes from knowing God is in control, even when my circumstances seem to be out of control. The phrase, my brothers, that James uses here, it's a pastoral affection. It is called to remind us that we are members of a family. So when he says, my dear brothers, he is talking to those that he knew that were of the faith. So when we read these words today, we have to remember that we are a part of of a family. It literally means those from the same womb. It is used 15 times within just these five chapters in the book of James. Now I want you to also notice that James doesn't say if we fall into trials, but when you meet them. The word meet has the idea of falling or stumbling, that we will meet trials of various kinds. It will happen. Whether you're going through them right now, you've just come out of them, or something you're about to go into into the future. But trials will come our way. 
The second thing that we can see here is to concentrate on the benefits. Look at verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now the word know literally means to know from experience. And testing refers to precious metals being heated up. They're heated up to the point that all of the impurities rise to the top to be scraped off. It has the idea, uh, Peter talks about the refiner's fire. You take silver, you take gold, you take something that is so precious, but there's these impurities that are inside of it, and you heat it up, and all of those impurities rise to the top, you scrape them off, and then you're left with something that is completely pure. And that's what we see here. Erwin Lutzer reminds us, God often puts us in situations that are too much for us so that we learn that no situation is too much for him. We love to say, well, God will never give me more than I can handle. Yes, he will, unless you have him. You see, what we have to understand of that verse that is taken many times out of context what we have to understand is Paul was telling us that God will give us more than we can handle, but never more than, we can, that, than God can handle, and he is always with us. And this testing, these trials that we're going through, it produces or brings about steadfastness. It brings about patience. It brings about endurance. The testing of your faith produces the ability to remain under without going under. You see, when we persevere, our trials make us complete. Look at verse 4. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. You see, steadfastness brings us to the intended end. If we persevere under pressure, we become finished and fruitful, lacking nothing in nothing. This means that the necessary parts are present. You see, if you want to be mature, if you want to learn how to stay under the suffering, only those who go through some messes will become mature. Too often we try to avoid the messes, but what we are understanding here is we have to go through the messes of life. We have to go through the trials. We have to go through the testing so that we can be purified. And then we have our third point here. Connect to God's wisdom. Connect to God's wisdom. James 1.5 is probably the most quoted verse and the most misused verse in all of James that we see here. We read, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. You see, God promises to give wisdom when we're wondering why we're going through the trials that we're going through. Why do we go through these tough times? That's the wisdom that God gives us, not overall wisdom in life, but the trials that we're going through. You see, God gives wisdom in, in two ways in this situation. The first one, he gives generously. This is in the present tense and is translated as bountifully. It means that he keeps on giving 
generously. He never stops. He is always there, always taking care of us. And he also gives us graciously. God gives wisdom as a gift. The NIV translates it this way, without finding fault. We need wisdom in our trials. We need to make sure that we don't miss what God is trying to teach us what God will bring about in the midst of our trials. If we're so caught up in our mess that we can't see the bigger picture, we will miss out. So we need to make sure that we're paying attention. We're to ask about without doubting as well. Look at verses 6 and 7. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. We actually read here that when we start doubting, it makes us unstable. Verse 8 says, a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The word was used to describe someone that was staggering like a drunk man. Someone has said, if your heart and mind are divided, trials will tear you apart. We have to make sure that even in the midst of our trials, in the trouble, in the torment, in the tribulation, in the hard times that we're going through, that our hearts and our mind, they're connected. And they're connected to God. Now, does that mean that I should never doubt? Does that mean that I should never question God? Absolutely not. God, we talked about that just last week as we talked about the resurrection. God allows our pain. God allows our suffering to to work its way out. And sometimes we have to ask God questions. And we question him, we yell at him, we want to know the reason of why we're going through it. And this is where we ask him for that wisdom. And if we're willing to sit back, he will allow us to find that wisdom. C.S. Lewis was once asked, why do the righteous suffer? He replied, why not? They're the only ones who can take it. How true that is. Drop down to verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Trials that test us will will, will toughen our faith if we don't allow temptations to trip us up. So now let's turn. We've talked about trials and we've talked about what we have to go through on the outside. Now let's turn it inward and let's talk about the temptations that can trip us up. Look at verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. Brothers and sisters, friends, I want you to lean in for just a few minutes and understand what we're going to take home from this. You will not make it as Christians if you don't learn to deal with trials and temptations. You will not make it if you don't find a way to deal with trials and temptations. You need to make sure that you are seeing it through. 
When trials come up, you go, well, God wasn't in that church. I'm just going to move on to the next church. Temptations come up, and instead of dealing with them, you push them aside, and you allow them to take over your life, and it can destroy everything that you've worked so hard for in your life. You see, trials on the outside can become temptations on the inside. One of the commentators that um, I I love to use is, is Douglas Moo, and he writes, every trial, every external difficulty carries with it a a temptation, an inner enticement to sin. You see, God often tests, but he will never tempt you. When it comes to temptation, we tend to blame others, right? I mean, we always want to find fault with someone else. My kids are, are very good at that. I have three of them. And when one of them gets in trouble, they will say, well, why aren't you getting on them? They didn't do this because they don't want to deal with what's really going on in their own lives. We love to blame others. And guess what? That's nothing new. It's nothing new to my children. It was nothing, uh, there was nothing new between me and my siblings. And going all the way back, go all the way back to the book of Genesis. There's three different ways that we blame The first thing, we blame others. When God asked Adam if he had eaten from the forbidden fruit, his first response was to blame. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 12, he says, She gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate it. The first thing that Adam does is he blames his wife. He blames Eve. But then, we blame God. Look at the first part of verse 12. Genesis chapter 3, verse 12. The man said, The woman whom you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. Adam doesn't just blame his wife. He says, God, it's your fault. God, you gave me this woman. It's your fault. I didn't ask for her. You presented her to me. You caused me to go to sleep. I lost a rib because of you, God. And then he blames his wife, and then we turn to Eve. Who does she blame? The devil. The devil made me do it. We love to use that one, right? All of us at one point or another have used this uh, verse, and we try to take it, and we put it into that context. In, In verse 13, God turns to Eve and asks her why she has done this. And Eve is quick to say, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. It was the serpent's fault. The devil made me do it. What about you? Are you quick to blame others? Are you quick to find someone else to blame for your own sins? Are you holding God responsible for your sinful choices? Do you secretly think that you have an out because the devil is around and the devil made me do it? Well, that's the temptations that start to trip us up. Let's look at the source of that temptation. If we want to overcome temptation, we must first understand its origins. Look at verses 13 and 14 of James chapter 1. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. John MacArthur says, the problem is not the tempter without, the problem is the traitor within. Let's draw four truths about temptations from these verses. The first one, temptations are inevitable. 
Temptations are inevitable. James says, when tempted. Again, we come back to that. We talked about that with trials. It's not if, it's when. He says, when tempted. Secondly, temptations are not from God. Don't even remotely suggest that God has something to do with your temptation. Even after losing everything, we read this of what Job has to say in Job chapter 1, verse 22. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. And, and if you remember the story of what was actually happening, God uh, allowed, jo uh, allowed Job to be tested by Satan. And Satan says, hey, if you take down this hedge that you've put around him, take everything away from him, surely he will curse you. And here in Job chapter 1, verse 22 God or Job never said that it was God's fault. Number three, temptations are universal. Universal. We keep reading, but each person, each of us will face temptation. Every single one of us. There's not a person that is alive that hasn't been tempted. Even Jesus was tempted in many different ways. He overcame them. We can overcome our temptations, but they are universal. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And then we come to that fourth one. Temptations are personal. James says, by his own desire. Temptations are tailor-made to fit you. And that's something that we really have to make sure that we dig in and we understand that everything that we go through has been tailor-made just for you. Let's look at the snare of temptation. Temptation is, de is designed to deceive and destroy. Look at verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Now, one of the things that we could do is, is to talk about hunting and, and fishing as metaphors. I grew up doing both of these. The word lured uh, really has a, a good connotation when it comes to hunting here. It, it, it means to be drug away, to, to, to drag out. When you're calling those turkeys, you're, you're making those sounds. You have those two antlers and you're smacking them together, trying to lure out that big buck to where you can get the shot on that buck. That's what we're talking. Drawing out, bringing out of a place of safety and entrapped by a specific attraction. The fish, it sees the bait and it bites, thinking it has a meal. It ends up becoming the meal. I did a lot of fishing growing up. Um, I loved to fish. My dad and my mom, they always took us fishing. We loved to fish, especially in all of the, 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 the backwoods ponds that we would go to. Uh, bluegill, crappie, um, catfish, bass, whatever we could find is, is what we loved uh, to go fishing for. And, and we would do this um, 
quite often. I love to pass it on to my kids. We haven't been out this year. We're going to get our license, and, and we're going to go out social distancing, keep uh, six feet apart. I know all of that stuff. But what I wanted to do is I have nine questions that I came up with uh, about fishing, and I wish I could have brought in these four guys and, and just been able to interview them in front of you, but um, in this room, we couldn't have gotten four guys to do this. So um, I sent all of them uh, the questions, and they gave me their responses uh, to these different uh, questions. We're talking about luring and enticing out. Uh, the first one, why do you do, uh, what do you do if the fish aren't biting? The answers were change the bait, change your location, change the presentation, or just go home and start telling fish stories. You know, when we think about that, we might not bite on a particular kind of bait, but we can get hooked on something else that is more attractive to us. Now, someone could come in right now and put a, a thing of cocaine right in front of me and say, hey, Travis, you want to do a line? Nope, that doesn't entice me. And you could continue to put that in front of me and nothing would probably get me to want to do a line of cocaine. Nothing could get me to shoot up with heroin. But if you tempted me by saying, hey, Travis, you want to go to move through and we'll sit in the line and I'll buy. I'm doing a challenge right now uh, to see uh, how much weight I can lose in this month. Um, that would be really tempting to me. If someone said, hey, I know that we're not allowed to play softball. Well, we're going to have an underground softball tournament. You want to play? I would be tempted by that, but the cocaine probably isn't going to tempt me. But we talked about that, that we are all going to be tempted, and they're tailor-made for each person. Second question, why do fish bite on something that is obviously fake and artificial and has a huge hook in it? Well, it looks real. It's an easy meal that they think of, and by nature... Fish are predators. You know, we deceive ourselves when we chase after those things that can get us hooked. We're prone to follow the flashy, often settle on cheap substitutes as well. Number three, how can a subtle change be the difference between catching and not catching a fish? Presentation is everything. That's what they all said. They know what a good meal looks like, and if it looks different than what they're used to eating, they're probably not going to take it. Again, the same thing is true for us. Just a subtle change can make us more vulnerable to temptation. Now, number four, sometimes the goal is to get a fish irritated and he'll bite. Why is that? They bite out of anger. They're spawning. They get irritated. You get them mad enough, and they're, again, predators. They're going to lash out. We need to watch out. When we're weary of wearing the same sweatpants day after day after day. Um, by the way, um, Walmart and Target have shown an increase of tops, but not bottoms, 
That's scary if you're doing Zoom calls or whatever it is and you've went out and bought a new top to wear, but you're not wearing bottoms. Whatever you do before you stand up, make sure you turn off the camera. Please make sure that you do so. We all get crabby though, don't we? It's interesting that in the midst of all of his pain, Job declares that he has made a covenant with his eyes to not gaze lustfully at a maiden. Number five, I've heard that it takes 10,000 casts to catch a trophy fish. Why so many? Well, with age comes wisdom. Fish can live 30 to 40 years. They've seen a lot. Patience is key. A lot of casts and a lot of luck. Satan is persistent. He will continue to pursue you. Our evil desires may be under control for 9,999 times, but it only takes once to take the bait. We must always be vigilant. We could say no to the same temptation over and over and over again, but it only takes one time to give in. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Number six, fish bite because they're attracted to the bait or irritated, by, but sometimes it's just out of instinct, right? Yes, nature kicks in. That's what they all said. In a similar way, we sin because it's our nature. We sin because we are sinners. That's why it's hard to get a good answer from a toddler or a teenager. You ask them why they disobeyed you. Why did you take this? Why did you do this? Why did you break this? And I don't know. I don't know. Or they start deflecting. They immediately, you know, our, 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 our granddaughter, she's almost two years old. She's already learned this. She does something wrong and, and you tell her that she's done something wrong and immediately she turns and looks at you and goes, because she knows that she looks sweet and innocent and so she knows, well, if, if I can play the game right, I'll get away with it. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 11 says, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. Our nature kicks in. Number seven, you can describe the design. Uh, can you describe the design of a hook and why it's so important to keep it sharp? Well, hooks usually come in a J or a circle hook, they're extremely sharp at the one point. And that's made so they can break through the thick skin. If the hook is dull, you will not be able to hook the fish. And then there's a barb that helps keep the hook connected when it's set. Sin is like that. It goes in smoothly. We get hooked. It doesn't come out easily. We must be vigilant and always be on guard. What happens when a fish breaks the line? I love the answers to this one. Swearing, a good story, but then they got to the real answers. He will have a hook in his mouth for a long time, and he'll have the scars until he dies. 
you know, we're forgiven for our sins. But we'll carry around the scars that have happened along the way. Sometimes there are long-lasting consequences. Even though we've been forgiven, there will be consequences that we have to pay with, pay for. And then our final question that I wanted to ask them, what happens if a fish swallows the hook? You try to remove it without hurting them. If it's completely swallowed, um, you cut the line and and you hope that when they swim away that the hook will rust away and they will make it. And most of the time that's what happens, but sometimes when that hook is swallowed, the fish die. Sin leads to death. Trials that test us will toughen our faith if we don't allow temptation to trip us up. Temptation is more of an event. It's a, more than an event, it's a process. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. You know, sin is, always looks better through the windshield, doesn't it? We enjoy sinning. It doesn't mean that it's right. It doesn't mean that it's good. But sin is fun. Sin, when we're looking at it beforehand and during the event, we go, that looks awesome. That's what we should do. But when we look at it from the rearview mirror, it might promise pleasure. Temptation will always deliver pain. When faced with temptation, stop looking at the lure or the beauty of the bait and look ahead to the consequences of that temptation and sin. We must understand the source and the snare of temptation. And finally, we come to the solution. Now, it was funny. Um, I, I was saying that, hey, the final point that I had this morning um, is uh, the solution to sin. And the easiest answer that was given, I could just conclude with this. They said, well, the solution to sin is death. And I guess I could just wrap up with that. But if we read in verse 16, the problem is, is that just isn't the easiest solution. Well, it's the easiest solution. It isn't the solution that we have. Verse 16 calls us not to give in to the deception. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. The word deceived means to wander away. Don't wander away. And the tense reads, stop being deceived. It's an action that is already in progress. I want you to again notice that James says, Dear brothers, he's giving us a command. He's giving us a warning to stay away from trials and temptations, but he does it in such a loving way. He gives great warmth and affection. You see, the key to overcoming temptation is to recognize its source and how it's designed to ensnare us. If we want victory, we must focus our attention on the Almighty. Look at verses 17 through 18. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own, he... he of his own will he let's try that again of his own will he brought he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures 
If we want to win over temptation, we must come back to the very character of God. It's not just about resisting. It's about refocusing. Refocusing on who God is. As we break this section down, there's three just quick points that I want us to go over. The first one is to understand that God is good. Because God is good, he gives good and perfect gifts. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down. And he gives these gifts continually. Secondly, God is great. From the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. He is the father of every born-again individual. In the Jewish mindset, the heavenly lights refer to the sun, the moon, and the stars. And they all revolve around, or the earth revolves around the, the, the stars and, and the sun. And it gives off this great light. But here's the thing. We find shadows. With what we are given today, there are shadows that are all around us. But with God, there is no shadow. With God, there is no dark side. There's the dark side of the moon, but there is no dark side when it comes to who God is. And then finally, God is a giver. God is the source of salvation, not temptation. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. If you're born again, aren't you glad that God has chosen to give you new birth? If what you need to do is to ask him for that salvation, you can believe and receive in him today. And if that's a decision that you need to make, I want you to make it. I want you to let us know. You can put it in the comments. You can send me a message and and we'll talk about what that means to accept him as your Lord and Savior. To have someone who can help you overcome those trials and temptations. To be able to find joy even in the midst of the pain that you're in in this life. For some of you, you feel like you're at the end of your rope. You feel like that biker who was yanked off of his bike and collided with the ground. You need someone to pray with you. You need someone just to share your burden with. First and foremost, I want you to know that you can go directly to God. You don't need me, you don't need Justin, you don't need any of the other staff, you don't need the elders to go to God. But we're here for you, and we'll help you, and we'll guide you of how to go directly to the Father. We've come to that part of the service where we're going to take communion. We're going to remember the death, the burial, and the resurrection. We're going to remember what he did for us. God 
co-equal with his son Jesus. He sent his son to die for our sins. Jesus, being co-equal with God the Father, said, I will give my life because they can't. In all of his perfection, he came and he lived and, and, and he lived a perfect life. Going through all the trials and temptations that we go through, he remained perfect. And he went to the cross and he died. But on the third day, he arose. So I want you to take those emblems that you have right now. And I want you to remember that that cracker, whatever you're using, represents the body of Christ. To remember who he is, what he did for you. That he was human just like us. He was tempted in every way. He was tested in every way, yet he was able to stand up underneath of it. And as you take the juice, you remember that he was perfect in every way and that his blood was shed for your sins. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that we're able to celebrate what you did for us as our Savior, that you gave your life as a ransom for us. And Father, as we partake of, of the bread and the juice, as we partake of our emblems, that we remember that very fact that you died so that we can live. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.